We're going to pray this morning that God speaks to the hearts of mothers. Father, I thank you. Lord, I believe today that indeed that you do give us uh, just words from heaven, a word in season. And Father, I ask you to give me clarity of mind, articulation of speech, boldness of spirit to speak your word as, as an oracle, not speaking from my own heart, but from your heart. And Father, I pray that each one here would have ears to hear, hearts to receive. Father, a will to be doers of the word. Father, to be changed by the word, inspired, and Father, lifted up and trained and made to understand certain things. And Father, we just thank you that we'll all have our minds renewed and elevated today by your word. And we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. Well, today, what I want to talk about is legacy. And my title is Moms, the Legacy Makers. If anybody is a legacy maker, it's a mother. And legacy is so important. You know, a lot of people, you know, legacy is passing down a lot of money and and, and legacy might be certain prestigious jobs or businesses held or positions or offices and, and different things. And, and some families think of legacy in, in terms of, you know, their, their prestigious address, their prestigious level of income and the, and the you know, title above their door or the office they held as senator or whatever. And there's a lot of ways that legacy can be viewed. But ultimately, legacy in the, in the most profound and eternal sense is our legacy of spiritual things. Proverbs 8, 10, and 11, it personifies wisdom. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. And the personification of wisdom is there. And when we look at legacy, I'm going to read Proverbs 13, 22, then we're going to go directly to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 13, 22 says this. It says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And, you know, it takes three generations to fall away. All throughout the scripture we see in the book of Judges, you get around to that third. The first generation had a wonderful experience with God. They pass it down. The second generation saw it in their parents. But then by the time it gets to the third generation, it's pretty much discommunicated by word of mouth. And there may not be as much of a true relationship experience of seeing it and experiencing it themselves. But a true wise man passes down a legacy or an inheritance to his children's children. Let me see. Let me read that again. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. And that inheritance can be wealth, it can be spiritual things, but Proverbs makes it so clear uh, that the greater thing is a spiritual inheritance or legacy that gets passed down. Let me read from Proverbs 8, and hopefully you all are there. But it says this, and it's the personification of wisdom. Wisdom is speaking here, and it says in Proverbs 8, 10, and 11 that Receive my instruction, not silver and knowledge, excuse me, not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. Let me read that again. Receive my instruction, not silver. And he's not against silver because later on it says that instruction, that wisdom will bring silver and gold to your life. Receive my instruction, not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Spiritual things are more important. A lot of people only focus on the passing down of money or the passing down of property or things like that. And, and that's important. And I understand that. But you know, how many of you know, if a person didn't get the legacy of understanding wisdom passed down, they'll just blow all that money. 
And we've seen that. The first generation really knew how to work for it and go after it, and they were motivated people. The second generation was thankful people, and because they saw mom and dad's hard work that obtained all that for them, and so they handle it as it's precious, and they steward over it well. But by the time it gets to the third generation, they don't have a clue why, why we've got so much money. I just I can hardly wait to spend it. But, but the greater thing is if they'd have passed down the wisdom, because the wisdom is what got the money, the lack of wisdom is what will lose the money. Now, we're just talking about natural things and how much more is that true spiritually. You know, you can buy all kinds of things with money, uh, but money can't buy getting your kids saved. Money can't buy getting you healed. Money can't buy a lot of things in your relationship with your spouse and your kids in a happy home. Money can't buy any of those things, but faith can provide all those things, and also faith can provide money. So there's something very powerful about this whole idea of legacy and inheritance and passing down. I would rather, you know, the old story is, you know, if someone, uh, which is better to give somebody some fish or a fishing pole? The fishing pole is much better because then he can go and learn how to fish for himself and you won't have to keep giving him fish because you'll have his own pole and teach him how to use it. He'll get his own fish and then now he'll be providing fish for somebody else. Can I get an amen? So there's something very powerful about legacy, inheritance, the wisdom that gets passed down, the understanding of stewardship, the understanding of walking with God, because walking with God in faith, faith is, is the commodity of heaven. Faith is the medium of exchange with God. Just like money is the medium of exchange on earth. Just like money, silver and gold, is the money of earth, faith is the medium of exchange. It is the way that you obtain things in the spiritual realm with heaven. And it is it, it truly is... Uh, the uh, way that we uh, operate in, in a model of, of buying and selling, so to speak, with our faith with God. And, and, and maybe buying and selling isn't the best words, but it's the way that we obtain, obtain things. So I want to move you over to the New Testament. Turn to 2 Timothy 1 and 5. And many times, that inheritance comes through a mom as well as a dad. And really, it should come through both, but we can look at some examples where the mothers really took the lead in scriptures of being that model and being that legacy maker. Everybody say legacy maker. I like that. That really makes me think of some things of legacy. Now, as I look at this Second Timothy scripture, we, took, we look at Timothy. Timothy took over the church at Ephesus. Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. Timothy was a great uh, protege. Uh, and he was being mentored by the Apostle Paul. Paul poured his life into Timothy. That tells you something right there. The guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, uh, poured, who he poured his life into, tells you that Timothy must have been an outstanding individual. But look what it says about Timothy. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says, I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother, Lois. And also, then it goes on, and then thy mother, Eunice. And I am persuaded that it is in thee also. So this legacy making of Lois and Eunice, when we talk about Timothy, it was his grandmother first that had the faith, and then his mother had faith, and then it got put into her son, Timothy, and the faith was passed down. And faith is the great commodity that we want to pass down. Faith is the great principal thing that the Bible talks about above silver and gold that needs to be passed down because it's faith 
that can cause you to inherit the silver and gold. And that's not the main objective anyway, because the true silver and gold of this life is winning souls and bringing people to Christ. Can I get an amen? That's the most important thing. And really, it encompasses, when one passes down faith, it encompasses all things, even that which money can't buy, as well as that which money can buy. But I want to give you six examples of moms who pass down their faith in some amazing ways that we need to look at today. And moms, it's, it's a great model that we have in scriptures that should encourage you to be moms of faith, legacy makers, that are going to pass some things down, not only to their children, but to their children's children. And I believe that it's a, it's a very powerful thing. We can talk about, you know, well, you know, when I was young, I got saved, and, and junior, you need to get saved, and, and I served Jesus with my life, and you need to serve him with your life, and, and you can talk, and sometimes it's just rhetoric, but there's something about these six ladies in the Bible that I'm going to share with you today. Things that they did with their faith that were living demonstrations demonstrated to their children that faith is, a, is, is, is one of those things, as it says in the New Testament, Jesus said, all things are possible by faith. I would rather pass down the power of all things being possible than a limited bank account. See, you can pass down a bank account, but that's limited. That'll be all spent one day, especially if it's a person... Uh, that receives it, doesn't know how to steward it. But I would rather pass down that all things are possible heritage. I want my kids to have in their heart the all things are possible God. I want my kids to have the all things poss- are possible vision and mentality for their life. I want to pass down the all things are possible vision for them to apply in their day-by-day living whether it's sickness, whether it's lack, whatever it is, the heritage is passed down to them because you know what? You can lose your natural inheritance, but you can't lose your spiritual internal inheritance that can create the wealth, that can create the, the things that you need, the situation, the relationship, that can fix the things that are wrong with your life. If you pass down that, that can touch everything in your life. Can I get an amen? That which can be bought and that which cannot be bought. So moms, you say, well, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have I give unto you. If you don't have any money, you, you don't have any great estate or, or great job or great knowledge and degrees, if you pass down your faith, you're passing down the greatest thing you can possibly pass down. Be encouraged. I want to begin with these six moms who modeled a testimony of faith to their children and created a faith legacy. And I believe that it is, it is something that is very scriptural to do. And turn with me to Psalms 145.4. It talks about that. It talks about how that we need to be doing this and passing down legacy. Now, it says in Psalms 145, it talks about these mighty works and these mighty things. And this is what we're going to do today. We're going to pass down by oral tradition, by reading the word, some of the mighty works that were done. And it says in Psalms 145.4, One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. If we don't, as one generation, pass down the works and the acts of God and tell about the times that, you know, Aunt Sally got healed, tell about the times that, you know, Pastor Bill, the boat started for him on the lake, and, and about the different times that have happened in our lives and, and the water, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the ice melted in the middle of winter. And, and if we don't pass down these legacies, then our kids may never know 
the God that we knew. And I'm going to show you some of these incredible stories. And one is the faith to conceive and bear the child in the first place. So the first lady we're going to talk about is Hannah. And that's over in 1 Samuel 1, 18 through 11b. And turn there. Here we have the story. We start the story out with a lady that cannot have a child. And she's just miserable. She's praying to God. In that culture, to not have a child and to be barren almost made you like you were unworthy. And, and it was, you know, in that ancient Jewish culture, uh, to have children to be fruitful and multiply was major. It's what they uh, based a lot of their self-worth on. And, and she's in a miserable situation. We'll pick up the story in First Samuel 8. And it says, Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? And I am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk, now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And this is what she said. Verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaiden and remember me and not forget thine handmaiden, but will give unto thine handmaiden, a man-child, I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come to his head. And it came to pass, as she continued to pray before the Lord, Eli marked her mouth. And to make a long story short without reading the whole text, she came, and Eli said, he marked her mouth, he, he prayed with her, he, he agreed with her. He comes back to the temple, and, and she's weeping again, and she's so miserable. He says, are you drunk? I don't know if you've ever prayed that hard, but I'll tell you what, she must have been praying pretty hard because the priest thought she was drunk. And she says, no, no, I am, I just, I'm believing. And I am standing. And, and the priest then Eli answered and he said, go in peace. And the Lord of Israel grant thee thy petition thou hast asked of him. And then she said, let thine handmaiden find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat and her countenance was uh, no more sad and then rose up in the morning early and worshiped the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanan knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived, she bare a son and called the name, his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked of him of the Lord. You know, I believe this, that because of her faith, she could have just said, you know, I can't have kids. I can't do anything about it. It's just my lot in life, and I don't know what I'm going to do. But she went, and she prayed, and she contended with God, and she fought the good fight of faith until that child was born. And Samuel was one of the greatest prophets. You know, Samuel was the last judge and the first prophet of Israel. It says of Samuel in another place, it said that none of his words fell to the ground. He was one of the only judges that left Israel in a unified and intact victorious over the Philistines, and everything returned back to the land that had been stolen from them. And in a posture of victory, in a posture of unity, in a posture of not apostate, but walking with God, he was truly one of the greatest prophets. And his mother must have taught him to pray because Samuel says in 1 Samuel 12 and 23, Lord, may I not sin against them. May I not commit the sin of not praying. For to pray, to not pray would be to sin against you. 
He prayed for the people of Israel, and the people of Israel were backslidden and overtaken with the Philistines, and the Philistines had taken their land and had ran them off. And by the time he got done praying, by the time he got done leading them, by the time he got done giving them a word and being the judge over Israel and the prophet over Israel, everything was restored. Israel was not backslidden. They had been revived. The people of God had wealth, and they were in a place and a posture of victory in every way. And it was because he learned how to pray. Well, where do you suppose he learned how to pray? His mom was barren and prayed and wept in the temple until God gave her a child and she vowed that child. So let me tell you something. One of the greatest things that you can pray and believe for is, as a mom is may I pass down the power to pray and have power with God. Can I get an amen? So here's one great lady who passed down a legacy of prayer And it got magnified and multiplied in Samuel. And he became the prayer warrior over a whole nation that brought Israel back from backsliddenness and uh, being in captivity to the Philistines. Let me give you a second lady, the faith to protect. In Exodus 1, 15 and 16, we all know the story that Pharaoh put out an edict to kill all the children, the babies of the Egyptian women because he'd heard that there was a deliverer rising up. He was jealous. He was threatened. He says, I'm not going to have a deliverer rise up. I'm not going to have somebody overthrow me as king. So what we're going to do is we're going to go out and kill all the babies of all these Egyptians because there's these prophecies, there's this hearsay going on that somebody's going to rise up and overthrow me. He says, so we're going to go kill all the babies. And then it says in the book of Hebrews that by faith, there was a mother who took her little child by the name of Moses and put him in a basket. And When the time came when they were going around and killing the Hebrew babies, she knew what was going on. She took that baby. She put that baby inside a basket. She pushed him off into the the Nile River, into the reeds. And then all of a sudden they came looking and they couldn't find it. They said, well, she must not have a baby. And and they went on by. And and then all of a sudden here comes the... (laughs) The great, the queen, one of the queens of Egypt coming down and sees his, finds his baby in a basket and thinks, man, this must be the providence of God. This must be supernatural because this is our world, you know, the river and, and this maybe is a river God. And here's this little baby in this little basket and, and all these things. And maybe if she'd heard of the ark someplace along the way and she thought, hmm, maybe God did this to this baby. She says, we're going to adopt this baby and we're going to raise him up to be a king. And she says, but the only thing is, this baby needs somebody to nurse. And you see, I tell you, Moses' mom was really smart. She sent her sister over there to talk to the queen and tell the queen, you know, oh, you found this baby. Wow, this must be something supernatural. I can understand why you might think he's some type of a god and some type of special omen and and very special and unique person and and why you want him to become in in the court of the Pharaoh and and you want to adopt him as your son. But the only problem is, who's going to nurse this baby? Well, you know what? I know one of these women, you know, you've been killing all the the babies in the land and there's some women running around here that were nursing and and, uh, you know, they don't have a baby anymore because they've been killing all the babies. And, and I know just a lady will come and nurse that baby and help you raise that baby. And guess what? It was Moses' mom. She's a pretty smart gal. And so she goes and she volunteers. She says, well, I'll help raise that baby for you. And now she not only protects that baby physically, but now she's going to guard over that baby with the right type of understanding of God, and she guards that baby all through his raising. She guards him spiritually from the dark heathenistic ways of Egypt and the house of Pharaoh. 
And she raises him up knowing that he's going to be a deliverer one day. And just like she delivered him and and protected him spiritually and she protected him physically, he's raised up and he brings the children out of Egypt and kills, keeps them, you know, the water divides when they go across the Red Sea and all the Egyptian army that wants to kill the children of Israel is destroyed. And now he learned that heritage from his mom and now he uses it because he knows how to be a protector, and he protects all the children of Israel. And not only that, but he brings them out of the pagan world of Pharaoh and the pagan world of Egypt and brings them into the wilderness so they can what? What was the express purpose to take them into the wilderness? To worship God. And now he's protecting the whole nation spiritually. And where do you suppose he learned how to protect somebody physically? Where do you suppose he learned how to protect somebody spiritually? He learned it from his mom, a legacy maker. Can I get an amen? There's some pretty powerful moms in the Bible. Can I get an amen? We think it's the great power was Moses. <laughs> but, you know, before every man is called to have a woman submit to him, he's called to submit to his mother. And here's a young boy that was raised by his mother in the house of Pharaoh. It'd be, like, it'd be like being raised with the, with the Rockefellers or the Kennedys and going to Harvard School of Government. And, and I mean, he was in the house of Pharaoh, but his mom was there. And she trained him to be a deliverer. And the Bible says in Hebrews eleven twenty three 23, that she did that by faith. Can I get an amen? amen. Well, let's go on to another mom. The faith to provide in the midst of a famine in 1 Kings 17, 10 through 15. There was a three-year-long famine, and Elijah was told to go down to the city of Zarephath. And there was a widow that would be there that would sustain him. And he went down to the city of Zarephath, and the widow of Zarephath was there. He met her at the well, and he met her at the place where she was getting ready to make for herself a little uh, morsel of bread and some oil. And because the famine had killed everything, the famine had left everything without any food for anybody. And she was down to her last little bit of meal and her last little bit of oil. And this mother was, uh, you know, she was afraid. And God had told her to provide for the man of God. Earlier than that, we read that in the text and we find out that she's about ready to die. Her kid's about ready to die. And here comes the prophet walks up and says, could you get me a drink of water? And so she gets him a drink of water. And then he says, uh, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm just getting ready to make this last little cake. I'm getting ready to make uh, this, put a little bit of meal and oil and cook it on the, on the cook stove, whatever she used. And she says, then my and my son are going to eat it. Then we're probably just going to die because there's nothing left. And you know what he says? He says, no, make me one. <laughs> How many of you today, you'd be ran out of town for that. You'd be called a heretic and a, and, a, and, a, and a, all kinds of terrible things. He says, no, just go ahead and make one for me. He says, because you know what? You're supposed to be in faith, lady. He says, God told you to take care of the man of God, which represents the ministry. And he says, if you'll uh, not be in fear, he, he said, fear not. How many of you know you can't be in fear and faith at the same time? Fear is believing something bad's going to happen. Faith is believing... Uh, something good is going to happen because we know that bad things come from the devil and good things come from God because Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So you're either in faith or fear. You can't be both at the same time because faith believes something good. Fear believes something bad. Worry is meditation on the bad. Meditation is believing on thinking about the good. 
And she's been thinking about the bad. She's been in a famine for years now. She's dying. Her boy is dying. They don't have no food left. All they got is a little piece. But you know, it's going to have to take some faith to turn around from eating that piece of bread and giving it to that preacher. But you know what? She raised up with a legacy of faith instead of fear. You know, a lot of people teach their kids how to fear. They teach their kids how to worry. They teach their kids how to not believe God. But then there are some parents who teach their kids how to not be in fear. They teach them how to be in faith. They teach them how to believe God. They teach them how to submit and put the kingdom of God first. Because the Bible says, Jesus said this, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Now she could say, with that little bread, that little cake that she made, she could say, well, I'm going to seek first me and my, my belly and my kid's belly first. And then the kingdom of God can have whatever's left over, which would have been nothing. Or she says, I can seek first the kingdom of God and say, I'll give it to the preacher and the ministry and the things of God. And then all these things will be added unto me. How many of you believe that that was the right choice? She took that little piece of bread and she said, okay, I'm going to not be in fear. I'm going to be in faith. I'm going to give it to that. And I'm going to make provision for the kingdom of God, the man of God, the work of God, however you want to view all that. She says, I'm going to put that first. I'm going to believe God's going to take care of me for doing it. Well, the Bible says that when he said, thus saith the Lord, the meal will never run dry. He says to her right after that, and this is what caused her faith, right? The meal will never run dry, and the oil will never run out. And if you'll do this thing, God will take care of you. She says, okay, I'm going to do it. Faith begins with the will of God. She makes the decision. She makes the bread. She gives it to the preacher. And the Bible says from then on, for the rest of those two, three years famine, that the meal never ran dry. And the oil never ran out. But see, that's not the end of the story. You see, you know, Elijah would have died and would have starved to death. How many of you know if there's a famine, that means there's no food? How many of you know if God told the widow to take care of him, then the way he was going to have to live was the widow was going to have to take care of him? How many of you know that's in the text? That first Kings, first Samuel 17. And for her to eat that bread that she had made, her little cake, I don't know what it was exactly, but it says a cake. And that oil and that meal and that cake, if she were to eat that with her son, they would have lived a few more days. But Elijah would have been sitting there with nothing to eat. And see, then he would have died. But she saved his life by saying, I'm going to give it to you. And then that was a seed sown, and it was multiplied back. And it says it took care of her, it took care of her son, and it took care of the prophet through the rest of the famine because the oil never ran dry and the meal never ran dry. And they tapped into a seed time and harvest miracle type of existence that saved everybody in the household. But then something happened. Her son died. Now remember, she saved the prophet's life. Can I get an amen? Anybody paying any attention this morning? And then what happens next is the prophet comes, and because he's been taken care of, he says, I'll pray over it. And she says, oh, yeah, I pro- this probably isn't going to happen. She, she kind of like even got out of faith a little bit. And he goes, and he raises that child from the dead. Now, who would have raised that child from the dead if he would have died of starvation? Because... She wouldn't have gave the cake and the cake wouldn't have been multiplied and there wouldn't have been food for her and her son and the prophet. You see, the very thing that she did was she saved the prophet's life and then he came and saved. She was going to, you know, I think that mother was really, the reason why she said, I'm gonna, me and my boy are going to eat this cake was more to save her son's life than her own life. 
And she was wanting to save her boy's life, but she, saved, but she chose to save the prophet's life. And then when the boy died, the prophet saved her son's life. How many of you know you reap what you sow in life? That's a profound story. There's so much of that story. You can preach it a hundred times and never exhaust all the principles that are in that little tiny story. This little old story over there in First Kings about a little lady who provided somebody some food. But see, that was a legacy maker. And you know, because she did that, there was a resurrection. Because she made a sacrifice for the ministry. There was a sacrifice and there was a resurrection made with her son. And just like we can see that Jesus Christ is the, is the ultimate sacrifice. And that sacrifice brought the resurrection which saved all of you and I. Can I get an amen? There's a lot of profound things in that little story about that little lady who made a meal for somebody. Amen. I would say she passed down a legacy that day. I think what that son observed that day carried him the rest of his life. I believe that that thing that he learned that day from his mom saved his life and probably propelled him into life in a whole different uh, way of thinking. Number four, faith for a child's development. I believe this, that there, there, are, there are some very... Um, Oh, I, I jumped over. Excuse me. I'm, I'm going to go to faith for a child's deliverance. Then we'll go to development. You know, so, sometimes we, we, we encounter a lot of ladies who are infertile or, or for whatever, they're impotent, they can't have children. We see Hannah is a picture of one who used her faith to bring a child into existence. Here we see a picture of a mom because of her faith Her child was raised from the dead. I want to go to this fourth one. A mother who brought deliverance because of her faith. Turn with me to Matthew, the 15th chapter. This is truly a profound story. We're talking about mothers who passed on a legacy. Mothers who demonstrated in front of their children that you may not need to have money when everybody else is starving and there's no no food. You might need to have faith for the food. You might just need to have faith for the things money can't buy. I would rather have that passed down than any other thing. Look at this Matthew 15th chapter. Very powerful portion of scripture. Here's another mother. Then Jesus went, in verse 21, this is Matthew 15, 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan. In other words, she wasn't a believer. She wasn't a Jew. She wasn't in the covenants of God. She wasn't considered one of the people that God could actually provide the blessings of Abraham for. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is vexed, is grievously vexed with the devil. Now notice, underline this in your Bible, that she called him son of David. That is only a Jewish messianic term. Son of David meant that he was the Messiah. She had recognition of Jesus as Messiah and she wasn't even a Jew. Very powerful. But he answered her not a word. Jesus ignores her. He marginalizes her. And his disciples came and besought him saying, send her away for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent unto the lost sheep I am not sent, but, excuse me, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus said, I'm sent not to the Gentiles, 
Paul will do that later. I'm sent to the Jews right now. That's the dispensation we're in. He didn't say all that, but that's what he meant. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, you're a Canaanite. You're not a, you're not a Jewish person. You're not in the household of Israel. You're not part of the covenants of God. You're not a daughter of Abraham. And you call him son of David. Let me tell you, that got Jesus' attention. Because that's a very messianic expectancy type of terminology. And then you come and you bow down and worship. And well, now you just didn't do that. She came down and worshipped him. You only do that before God. That means not only did she understand his place in prophecy as the Messiah, but she understood his place in eternity as the Almighty God. She was doing better than the Jews just on those two points. She was already way ahead of the curve. Can I get an amen? Because they didn't understand, and they didn't recognize him as God. And then came she and worshipped him and saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and he said, it is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Dogs, that's a term for Gentiles. And the children's bread would be the things that the Jews had coming to them in the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, he's saying, you're not part of us, lady. And then she says something very profound. And she said, the truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall off the master's table. Wow. Now she's really getting into deep understanding that what falls off the master's table is talking about the Jews and that would go to the dogs under the table. And what that really means is the Gentiles would one day be engrafted in, even though they weren't part of the covenant. And Jesus is thinking, now this woman's just about reading my mind of who I am. She's, re, re, she's understanding that I'm the Messiah. She's understanding I'm God. And she's understanding there's going to be a covenant one day for the Gentiles. That's going to, the crumbs off the table, that's the, the Jewish covenants, is going to go down to the dogs under the table, that's the Gentiles. She's understanding that there's going to be a cross one day that the Messiah is going to hang from, and that's me. And she understands all this. And look what he turns and he says to her. He says, then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. In the Greek, the term is mega is thy faith. It's the same word that we use for the word mega in English. And there's only, she's the only person in all the Bible that it is referred to as a person who had mega faith. Everybody say mega faith. All the while, her little demon-possessed daughter is watching. She's got all kinds of weird things going on in her. She, she wants to be herself, and then she wants to be somebody else, and whatever's causing her to be grievously vexed. But she's hearing her mom approach Jesus in these ways. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, who's marginalizing her, suddenly says, I'm not moved by your need, lady, but I'm moved by your faith. And he says, because it is so incredibly big, and it is so mega, I have to do what you say. Look what he says, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Wow. That's a mom that passed down quite a legacy to her daughter. Can I get an amen? That's pretty powerful to see that. I'd like to have met that daughter down the road and found out how it affected her life. Number five, faith to train up a child. Proverbs 22.6 says that, that faith... 
expresses itself like this. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Judges 13, 4, and 5, there was a woman, and she conceived a child, and, or she was barren, and she was trying to conceive a child, and suddenly an angel came, and it's the story of Samson. Let's look at the story. And it's faith to train up a child in a godly way. Look at this. This is powerful. We're just about done. How many of you like these examples? I just am fascinated. There's some women in the Bible that did some things that are just utterly amazing. Ladies, you, you, you have tremendous potential to affect the future. And they raised children that were world changers. How many want to raise some world changers? And it was the ladies. It was the ladies that did these amazing things. Judges 13, the mother of Samson. Let's begin reading there. And it says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines. Well, that was like every other month in the book of Judges. They were, back, they were apostating, and then they were getting revived and apostating, getting revived. They're in captivity, and then they were victors. And it just went back and forth. And there were those who were called to be judges in Israel. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman, and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive, and bear a son. Okay, the word of the Lord comes. Now she's going to have to have faith to believe it. Now therefore, beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine. And her, her faith was going to be expressed by following the instructions. Now therefore, because faith without works is dead. Now, therefore, beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine or strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Well, we all know who that was. That was Samson. First of all, she had to have faith to conceive and and believe and obey. Then she had to have faith to consecrate herself. Then she had to have faith to train up and consecrate her child to be a Nazarite. How many of you know it takes faith to spank your kids? How many of you know it takes faith to make your kids obey? How many of you know it? And she had to make that kid not cut his hair. She had to make that kid never drink alcohol. She had to make that kid follow the vows of the Nazarite so that there would be a sense of consecration unto God. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, it takes faith to spank your child. It takes faith to correct them. It takes faith to make, to make them go the right places and do the right things and learn the right stuff. And it takes faith to consecrate yourself. First, it says she had to consecrate herself. How many of you know you can teach your kids all you want, but if you're not doing it yourself, they're never going to obey you? It took faith for her, her to live a consecrated life. It took faith to teach her child to live a consecrated life. It took faith to do that. And even then, <clears throat> old Samson had some problems, some lady problems. Can I get an amen? He wasn't perfect. But the story goes like this. That mother trained him up. She tried to get him not to marry that harlot Delilah. But even in spite of that, we see that her consecration and her consecrating her child raised up one of the great deliverers of Israel who went and defeated 3,000 Philistines. He got in some trouble with a woman. How many of you know that you can get in trouble marrying the wrong woman? And he did. And the the Lord of the Philistines told her to go sabotage him. That's a typology of demons, sabotaging the godly leader. 
And she did, and she seduced him. She sabotaged him. And then she got to cut his hair. He told his secret. She cut, her, cut his hair. And then they came in, and they poked out his eyes. They, put, they tied him up, and they put him in the grinding mill. And it was blinding, binding, and grinding. There was a blinding of his eyes, a binding of his hands, and a grinding in the house. Not only did he become uh, defeated by the Philistines, he became their slave. That's a picture of bondage to the devil. And then in, finally his hair began to grow back, and the Philistines were having a big party, and he went into the party, and they wanted to make fun of him and jeer and, and make him the object of ridicule, and he was blind, but his hair grew back. How many of you know in time, if you walk with God and you repent, uh, the anointing and, and the blessings of God can come back? See, and his calls without repentance. And so he's in there, and the Philistines are making fun of him. He's chained, and there's all kinds of things going on. But he knows that there was a little boy about yay tall in his blindness that led him into that room. And he heard all those things and all those people plucking his beard and spitting on him and hitting him and beating him with sticks and doing all kinds of terrible things to him. And they're laughing, and they're all drunk, and they're having a good time. And all these things are going on. And he senses that little boy still standing. He's a blind guy. He's standing there, and he says, put my hands on the two columns. And he says, Lord, one last time, let me have the strength, the strength that I saw growing up of being consecrated to you, the strength that I saw my mom who consecrated herself to you, one last time, give me the strength to do this thing that I was called to do in that Nazarite vow, and let me be victorious over this wicked party of Philistines. And he must have heard yes in his spirit. Because he turned to the little boy and says, put my hands on the columns. And up in the balconies were all the Philistines and the columns that held that up. He began to feel that strength come back and that consecration come back. Someone taught him that consecration. He felt that strength come into his arms and he pushed out on those columns and he took his own life, but he also took the life of 3,000 Philistines and it was the tipping point for Israel to come back to God. Somebody say amen. Those stories are so powerful. But it's all because of a woman, the way she raised her kid. All because of how a woman raised her little boy. These are the great moms of faith. These are the great legacies passed down. These are the great things that we should be inspired by on Mother's Day because mothers are powerful legacy makers. <clears throat> Excuse me, my throat's a little dry. And then we're, we're going to go to this last one. And this is really powerful. We're at Cana. Mary is there. Jesus is there. The disciples are there. They decide to go to a wedding at Cana. John 2, 1 through 11. And Mary's there. Jesus is mother. And they come up and they said, we've run out of wine. The disciple says, hey, they completely ran out of wine. What are we going to do? And the owner uh, of the place that, that was putting on the wedding says, we're out of wine. Jesus, what, you know, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, no concern of mine. And Mary says, no, now is your time. Go turn that water into wine. Do something about it, Jesus. Jesus is saying, what? See, the Bible says that when Jesus was growing up, that Gabriel came to Mary before she had Jesus. And said, you're going to have a child and he's going to be the mighty God. He's going to be the son of David. 
And she began, the angel told Mary all about this child who's going to be the Messiah before he was ever born. And then the day that he was born, the angels came and they sang. And they said, glory to God in the highest. And they began to declare again that he was going to be the son of God. He's the Messiah. And then on the eighth day, when they went to the temple, Simeon and Anna, the prophet and the prophetess of the temple, came up and they began to prophesy over Jesus' life and saying, he's the one that we've been waiting for. Simeon says, I can die now. I've seen this, the Messiah. Anna gets up and begins to prophesy all the things that are going to happen. And at each time when the angel came, Gabriel says that Mary kept all those things in her heart. When the angels came at his birth and they were singing Hosanna and, and all these things, it says she kept all those things in her heart. When she went to the temple on the eighth day and had him circumcised and committed to the Lord, it says when they prophesied Simeon and Anna had all these prophecies over him, it says she kept all those things in her heart. So when the day came that it was time for the beginning of Jesus' ministry, how many of you know at Cana, the turning of water into wine was the beginning of Jesus' miraculous ministry? He says, ah, it's not time. And she says, oh, yes, it is. And Jesus went, and he turned the water into wine. How many of you know it took a mother to launch the little bird out of the nest, even though the little bird didn't know if he was ready or not? The good thing was, is Mary, the mother, pushed him out of his comfort zone like a nest, like a mother bird, who understood his potential better than he did. She remembers all those prophecies. She remembered everything that God had told her about Jesus, and she told him to begin to act in concert with it. What if... What if Mary wouldn't have been there that day? Because Jesus had no intention of going and turning the water into wine until she pushed him and told him to go do it, and then he goes and he does it. Now, we didn't turn to the text, but you go ahead and read it yourself. See, mothers have a big part to play in all these different types of things. You know, Jesus is Mary's legacy, just like Moses was the legacy of his mother. Legacy makers are powerful. Let me, re- let me say this. They have faith to conceive. They have faith to save like Moses' mother saved him from Egypt. Like Hannah saved and Samuel was conceived. Faith to provide like the little woman who gave up the meal and the oil. Faith to deliver out of the hands of wicked ones like the little girl that was demon-possessed. Faith to train up like Samson and faith to launch out like Mary did Jesus. How many of you think mothers are important people this morning? Mothers are legacy makers. Let's all stand. We're going to be dismissed. And if you're a mom today, we want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate the office that you stand in. We want to celebrate the great potential for you to be a legacy maker with your children. We want to celebrate you because... You have sacrificed to have your children. We want to celebrate moms today because God has placed you in a very unique and wonderful situation to affect mankind by affecting the children that you raise up. I think it's a wonderful thing. Amen. Anybody get anything out of this today? Mothers are powerful. They're big. They're power brokers. They can do amazing things. They can do more behind the scenes than most people can do in front of the scenes. Amen.